Hello, everyone. This is another episode of A Moment in History, our 17th interview. Uh, this is for WCCS podcast, and I am Harrison Zyberg. And if my guests would like to introduce themselves. All right, so I guess that that's my cue. So my name is Abby Cook. I'm a member of the class of 2022 at Wheaton College. On campus, I'm involved with Student Government Association as the student body vice president. I'm also involved with new student orientation and peer mentoring through the preceptor program, and I'm really excited to be here. So first question, and I usually, this is usually the first question for Wheaton people. Do you remember the first moment you learned you're gonna be moving on, from on-campus learning to remote learning? I do. I mean, I was actually on vacation and I knew that COVID-19 was a very relevant threat. I remember entering my hotel room, but instead of, you know, just kind of lounging around and relaxing, I disinfected the entire room. I remember just kind of waking up and laying in bed and seeing the email and not knowing exactly what that meant at all. I was confused because I didn't think that Norton, Massachusetts, that small quaint place had a lot of known cases. And um, I have a lot of friends who graduated from the Wheaton class of 2020. So I just immediately felt for them and contacted them to make sure that they were okay because I can't imagine having that second half of that second semester robbed from them. That's what I remember. And before uh, campus shut down, before um, we had to go to remote learning. Did you remember thinking of COVID as like as a potential threat, as something that was gonna potentially affect the rest of your sophomore year, or was it sort of just out of mind? Was it? It was like was COVID more of a surprise to you, or were you sort of waiting for it to hit? I honestly was surprised completely. Um, admittedly. Um, my majors are political science and Hispanic studies, but I wasn't tuned in enough to know that this was a relevant threat. Um, I think that just goes to show kind of the lenses that we adopt and, oh, it's not in my country, it's not my problem, or I didn't look for that in the news. Um, so that was kind of my experience with it. So when I saw that it was rapidly spreading across the U.S., I was surprised. And could you tell us a little bit about a little bit more, if you're willing, about the feelings surrounding, I guess, the switch from the sudden switch from on campus learning to remote learning, but also your feelings as classes started to come up again, as clubs tried to figure it out. You're in SGA, as you said, so your feelings surrounding trying to organize all of that. Yeah, so it was quite a shock and quite a shift as everyone experienced. I mean, the campus tried to be as informative as it could. I mean, I know from a student government perspective, we had no idea what was going to happen. I mean, we had upcoming elections and although they do take place or the voting does take place remotely and online, it was kind of shifting that entire campaign culture to a, um, a virtual platform and making sure that that was set in stone and equitable. And on top of that, I just didn't really know how my classes were going to adjust. I just remember getting emails, um, just prolonging the announcement of kind of what they would switch to. I know that a lot of my courses that were seminar-based continued to be seminar-based and synchronous, um, but I had a couple classes switch to Google um, Classroom and a bunch of other platforms. And it was difficult at first navigating and adapting to remote instruction and, um, all of the things that I'm involved in as well also had to take a drastic shift in the direction and what we had planned. Um, and that's kind of my perspective on that. 
Uh, could you pick one class in particular and just sort of say specifically how that uh, transformed from on-campus learning to remote learning? Yeah, so um, I was actually taking a contemporary Latin American poetry course where I had maybe one to two assignments a week and two in-person classes where we would just kind of um, debrief and talk about our annotations and it kind of was a relaxed course. And I remember that um, when we switched to more remote instruction, um, I just immediately felt like the double-edged um, nature of it, being that the cons were that it wasn't as genuine. I was worried about my participation in another language counting. How is that going to look like? I was worried that maybe it wouldn't be as motivating um, and especially worried for my classmates in terms of access to the internet and internet inequality. But um, the class, um, unfortunately, did become a little bit more invasive. It was the class that kind of shocked me the most and took up the majority of my time because in terms of switching to remote instruction, um, it kind of blurs those academic and professional boundaries because you can be accessed at any time. And there's this growing, or maybe there was a growing assumption among professors and staff that, oh, since students are home, all they're doing is sitting in their homes, maybe not taking into account their personal situations. And that um, just personally as a student, what I experienced with this course was where I went from having one to two assignments per week. I was working on that class seven days a week in terms of the on-course discussions that I had to fill out, um, the forums, um, poetry diaries, synchronous class discussions two times a week. Um, I'm interested to see how that will adapt in the future as we continue with the hybrid model, some courses being delivered completely um, remote and others being on campus. Now you mentioned how um, the coursework, the course load became a lot more when you switched to remote. Did the amount that you were retaining, the amount you were learning, was that affected at all by the switch, by going from in-campus, in-person learning to online? So I know that there are kind of two schools of thought in this area. I'm one of those weird people who can still retain information, whether it's online or not. I know several people, um, several of my peers who struggled in this area. Um, and prefer to write down their notes and prefer to be reading a physical copy of a book instead of a memo or an email or switching to ebooks online. Um, I didn't have problems with retention, maybe problems with focus because sometimes a laptop can be distracting and sometimes we all have that urge in the middle of a lecture to just kind of mute ourselves, um, mute our camera and just continue working on an assignment for another class or even their class depending on the workload. Um, but I think where most of my issues were, were in terms of motivation at times, because it felt kind of criminal taking mental health breaks for myself because I was kind of um, trapped in my house. And what else did I have to do? Um, technically, maybe my professors were right in that I did have to stay home and just focus on my work and that there shouldn't have been anything coming between me and my schoolwork anymore because the physical boundary was removed. So I'm not sure if anyone else experienced that, but that's kind of what I was feeling. And did that um, feeling against mental health breaks or feeling that you always, I guess, should be doing the work or should be able to keep up with the increased workload, did that continue all throughout the remote part of the semester? Or were you able to think of that in a different way? Now I think of it in a different way because it's amazing how 
we're able to adapt and we're able to create this experience with a virtual platform despite it feeling kind of removed from humanity. But when it first started, I um, admittedly did struggle a lot. I just remember feeling stuck and my professors at the same time were flooding my email inbox saying, oh, if you need any help, please be honest, please reach out to us, please ask for extensions. And because um, they were being so kind and were trying their best, it felt wrong to reach out and complain or to at least be perceived as ungrateful by them or for um, asking for help or asking for an extension. Um, I did at one point crack and I did ask one professor for an extension, but um, they gave me an extension for an entire week when I asked for 24 hours. Mm -hmm. So it's not to say that they weren't trying or doing everything that they could. It just felt for some reason out of place to complain about their workload and how they were trying to accommodate us when um, they were being so nice via email. <laughs> Do you think this feeling was heightened by the situation by the pandemic and with everything going on? Was this a feeling you sort of had? throughout your previous semesters in college? I think it was mostly spurred by the remote learning. I felt way more comfortable visiting my professors during office hours. I know a lot of professors in the poli-sci department at Wheaton are just eager to sit down and have a coffee with you. Um, so it was definitely and um, just kind of um, nervousness inducing to be in this remote format with so much unknown at that point. Now, in the last few weeks, we've seen that Whedon is reopening and has come up with a reopening plan and there's new information. I was curious as to what your feelings towards that reopening plan were and if you planned on going back next semester. That is the question that everyone is asking. I see that on Instagram stories all the time. That's kind of where I've been. If anyone wants to access me, hit up my Abby W. Cook Instagram handle. That's my shameless plug there. <laughs> um, <laughs> so. Um, through that, I've just been seeing the question, are you coming back to wheat or not? Just yes or no. And I so wish that there was a maybe button because that's currently where I'm at right now. I have the privilege of being more intimately connected with the reopening plans because I sit on the campus compact reopening committee um, for Wheaton. So I have been working with some administrators and our job is to kind of create a pledge of community expectations. So that way when we do get to campus, we'll have something in addendum to our honor code that states kind of what the expectations are um, socially and academically, online etiquette, on-campus etiquette. And this also extends to um, a pledge that the faculty and staff have to make as well. So being as connected as I am to all of these resources, I wish that there was increased transparency between the groups that I have the pleasure of working with in the campus because a lot of this information might um, deter students from coming back in the fall because in my mind I have this very different view of Wheaton than what I'll be met with when I come to campus and um, there is again it's like it's nervousness inducing kind of seeing these plans come out in chunks and working to develop this pledge. I know information will become available and they have made a lot of promises as to what will be released on the first day of school and coming in August. So we do have that to look forward to. However, I wish that there was some increased transparency in kind of what we should be expecting as a student body when we come back to Wheaton because 
there are a lot of heightened restrictions. We might see a decrease in quality of life, and this also calls for um, greater accessibility to mental health services on campus, and I'm not sure if Wheaton has the infrastructure to accommodate that at this moment, but I can say that from previous meetings that I've had, there's going to be the introduction to teletherapy on campus. Mm -hmm. um, so the counseling center is trying to maneuver around um, licensure and ensure that the therapy is legal and accessible to all students. That is the information that I've gotten on that. So I'm not sure when that will be released, um, but the campus is considering virtual face-to-face -face, um, um, meetings and also teletherapy. So. Again, not sure the, how that's going to go, but those are just some promises that I've heard in passing. Now, do you trust that um, the plan that is released right now and that the Wheaton community does know, do you trust that your fellow students will follow that? Or is that, because I know personally for me, I'm sort of, I don't think that many students will follow it to the fullest degree. So I was wondering what you personally felt about that. I mean, as a Wheaton student, I, completely agree that Wheaton is a family. It is a community feeling. That is the narrative that Wheaton promotes as an institution. And while I love that message and I love that they're trusting us to develop a pledge for the rest of campus, um, based on the caution fatigue that I've just seen um, on social media in terms of going out, going to restaurants, going on vacation, I'm not too optimistic about our age group returning to campus, especially since college is this opportunity to kind of find yourself, make mistakes, having, or those are our first experiences with like true autonomy and independence. And it's unfortunate that, oh, I'm so sorry if you can hear my dog in the background, but it's unfortunate that um, we'll be kind of stripped of those experiences in the process of returning to campus or whether you stay home and participate as a remote student. And knowing, does being on the inside of, or just knowing the inside of the decision-making process and knowing more than probably the average student does, does that make you, or has that caused you more trouble in making a decision to go back or has it sort of eased your mind? Because I know this can be a difference of having too little information so not you're, you're not able to make a decision and having so much information that there's just so many other factors to consider so I was wondering your thought process towards that well it's kind of a mix of emotions actually because in some ways it quells any anxiety that I have about the subject because I know that people are at least working on it and that they're aware of it um, somewhere in the realm of higher education at Wheaton However, at the same time, um, knowing all of this information has kind of made me hesitant to come back to campus. And I hate the fact that I say that because I am so involved on campus and Wheaton really has become a second home for me, a place where I can be my most authentic self. And I hope that others experience that comfort when they're also at Wheaton and not being able to be there on campus in that way hurts me because I would love to ensure that everyone feels comfortable. I would love to continue serving in my roles as I did before. I would love to just experience life and the culture of Wheaton in the way that it was before. Uh, it's not to say that anything didn't need improvement, but it's, 
it's a lot of restrictions on um, our freedoms and our ability to express ourselves as students. And again, I just find myself where I just have this mental block and this difference kind of between what my head is saying and what my heart is saying, because my head is saying that if I stay home, there's a lot lower chance that I will be infected. I don't have to go through a rigorous testing schedule. I won't have to be quarantined in my room um, for two weeks or um, 48 to 36 hours, as mm -hmm. the school is suggesting. Um, so it's just a matter of kind of weighing priorities and seeing if boundaries and health take priority or if it's the end to my social isolation that I need in order to get myself back on track. And does, actually, sorry, I had a question, but I'm gonna move on to something else. So I was curious as if you could tell us what a typical day during quarantine the last few months has been for you. And you can talk about when you're in school, when school has been over, that's up to you. Um, I'm struggling to kind of remember how it was when school was in session because I haven't stopped having meetings this summer. So I've always just kind of been working on and off and it entirely depended on whether or not I have a synchronous meeting or not. Um, and all the days do just kind of blend together. Mm -hmm. So for me, a typical day is waking up anywhere between 8 a.m. to 12 p.m. and then attending my meetings um, generally with a shirt that looks professional and then pants that certainly don't. Um, <laughs> um, I know everyone kind of jokes about that, but the dress code has gotten kind of um, unreal and kind of out of control. But um, it's hard to kind of recount my days here. I apologize for this. No and it's, it's mostly just if I have meetings that day, I go through the motions, I take notes, I work on projects and throughout the day just scheduling time to video call with friends or call family members to make sure that they're okay um, because i do have a lot of family members that live in long island new york so that is a little bit stressful at times and then just spending a lot of time in my room watching a lot of netflix and then going to bed <laughs> can i ask where in long island because my dad's from long island oh i did not know that yeah so he's from comac don't know if that's anywhere near where your family is. Yeah, I mean, okay, so fun fact about me. So I was born in Massachusetts. I live in Connecticut. However, I was raised by a Long Islander and a New Hampshireite. So I kind of got a lot of different family influences there. Um, so I don't really see a lot of New York or Long Island in general, but I am just in contact with my family members from there. So a question I had was, well, you, so you mentioned a lot of, you've been in a lot of meetings. I know you, you mentioned uh, you're part of the reopening committee. I was wondering if you could tell us some of the other activities, meetings that you've been in. It depends on if you mean like fun meetings or more serious meetings. Um, whichever you would like to talk about. That's All right. So the meetings that I find the most fun um, were, are my preceptor meetings when I get to meet my preceptees and help them kind of figure out their first year at Wheaton. That's always exciting for me. I always get a rush for meeting new people. Um, I also worked with um, virtual orientation this summer, which was a wild ride and a roller coaster of emotions to say the least, because none of us thought that we would be prepared to deliver virtual content that would engage people. But 
it actually ended up kind of being an exhilarating experience for all of us. And we met a lot of parents, guests, and new students. So those are types of meetings that I've been having. In terms of SGA, I have open office hours this summer, um, not only to pass the time, but to set us up to have our most productive year yet. Um, I thought I would take ownership of my role early and try to um, fulfill one of my campaign promises early by um, being more available, really taking in concerns and putting student concerns at the forefront of our SGA agenda setting. So I've talked to students and SGA representatives about creating a Title IX accountability board or committee. Same goes for a gender and sexuality board which I think would be um, a great service to our community. Um, I worked on the Campus Compact Committee. I'm trying to think of other meetings that I've had and it completely ranges based on what a student asks for in terms of a meeting um, when we set up our office hours. Um, and I've sat in on a couple mental health services meetings. That's how I know about um, teletherapy and the virtual face-to-face. So they're trying to figure that out if they can get the appropriate licensing. Um, so basically all of these meetings are trying to set up SGA and all of these other programs on campus so that when we, um, when some of us return and some of us are participating remotely, there is a plan in place where we can actually carry out a lot of these changes or we can carry out a lot of new ideas that have come to the table. So despite all of the cons that I mentioned about being remote, um, it's still a wonderful opportunity to be able to communicate with people um, kind of regardless of their time zone and regardless of their ability. Um, it removes the barrier of the physical location and it's actually at some points not as arduous as moving between one physical location to the next for a meeting. Um, so I've been grateful to have the opportunities to meet with people and hear what they have to say. And I hope to just um, continue to be as informative as I can as we're moving into the fall semester. Now, you mentioned that you're, uh, you were talking to preceptees, which obviously first years that are coming in. Um, now, we've both been in the weeding community for over two years at this point. So I was curious, uh, what does it feel like talking to people who are just entering this new places and like college for the first time is entirely new experience in such entering in such a weird way like either going to be remote or they're coming onto a campus that's going to look completely different from what we experience so i was wondering how do you even talk to them and try to tell them about what Wheaton's going to be like when no one really knows what Wheaton will be like Wheaton did um they kind of pulled a sneaky on us because we didn't really know anything about reopening plans, absolutely nothing. I was in contact with the administration and I didn't even get any hints as to <laughs> what they were going to drop. The new housing lottery process surprised me, taking Everett offline surprised me, the testing cycle surprised me, absolutely everything just kind of came all at once and it was this influx of information. Um, so in speaking with these students as I did in, um, yes, throughout the month of June, it was more focusing on their academic interests and they, a lot of them hadn't even come to Wheaton's campus before and the possibility that some of them are experiencing a semester at Wheaton from home. Um, I can't imagine how um, detached they might feel, but I'm hoping that orientation was successful enough and broken up enough in terms of the content per day. We had four days of orientation. We had 
um, a week for students, but then we also provided a makeup week for those who were not able to attend the first. Um, it's difficult to explain Wheaton's culture and most questions surround um, um, what is there to do off campus? What is there to do on campus? What are you involved in and why? How's the food? Everyone loves that question at Wheaton, right? Um, kind of, how did you feel when you first came to campus? How is living on campus? Um, one question that I got was particularly funny to me was how do you survive the communal bathrooms? Um, <laughs> so gender inclusive bathrooms at Wheaton were unfortunately one of the highlights of the questions that I received, but um, it's all like very valid questions of exactly what is their experience going to be at Wheaton, um, kind of what's the environment, um, and actually just more honestly, a lot of questions were surrounding, will I be able to drink in my room? Will I be able to smoke in my room? Will I be able to hang out with friends? Um, the questions essentially ranged from um, small academic interest-based questions to about like the realities of living at Wheaton for the first time, especially not having been able to see it. I always think it's funny when I hear stories about, one about food, also about people who haven't visited Wheaton because I never took a tour before I committed. I've been on campus, but just sort of, I didn't know what anything was or what anything was until the first time I actually like came to be a student. But so the next question is just gonna be quick questions. Um, what has been your favorite show during quarantine TV show, movie? Oh, this is a fun question. So I've been watching a bunch of stuff, um, not to be basic or anything, but I am one of those people that religiously watches The Office when they have nothing else to watch. Um, I am that person that listens to like The Office ladies Pod with like Je um, Jenna Fisher and like Angela Kinsey. I am that person. Um, but more seriously to answer this question, I watched The Politician. That show was so good. I thought it was going to be more corny because it at first centers around somebody going um, head to head with someone in a high school election mm -hmm. and high school elections are so much different than what I've been able to experience in a college level student government association. Um, but I loved it, of course, because of the political satire and all. So I definitely recommend that. I also, and I'm ashamed to admit this as a poli-sci major, I just started watching The West Wing. And I've, I loved that too. Mm -hmm. um, I also watched Grace and Frankie. So I was watching these shows at the same time. And Martin Sheen is in both mm -hmm. in very different roles. And I absolutely loved his range. And... Um, I think that he plays like a very talented role and very central role in both, obviously. Um, and that's kind of what I've been watching. I'm looking for more recommendations because I started watching The Office again, which is a habit I have to stop doing. <laughs> say, so are, are you all the way through The West Wing or are you just, what part, where are you at on The West Wing? Oh my gosh. Um, let me think. The last time I was, because now it's just filled with memories of The Office. I need to stop doing this. Um, <laughs> Last I was watching, um, oh God, I don't want to spoil it on your show. I think it's fine. I think <laughs> it's fine. Okay, poli sci majors, if you're listening the, to this and you haven't watched West Wing yet, the show's been done <laughs> for like 13 years, so I think it's fine. Right, I know. Like, I'm late to the game. It was when Donna took the fall for her boyfriend who was working, um, working at the White House. 
and then Josh came to confront her, and then, um, I'm forgetting his name, what the heck, Charlie was really broken up about Zoe and his, um, or her, not his, um, her um, foreign boyfriend, who is a, a airhead, by the way, and Charlie deserves better, so I need to figure out what happens from there. That's, my, that's season four, that's my favorite show. There's actually a <laughs> podcast called the west wing weekly where um a guy who was on the show i don't think he's on the show from the point you're at he that him and like a super fan go over every single episode so it's a good podcast i would recommend it um, oh i love that uh, another question what's been a favorite book of yours if you've had one during quarantine okay so this book is actually more interesting than it sounds it's called the 48 laws of power so essentially what this book focuses on is it teaches you how to curry favor and maintain power. Not that I have any, um, but I think it's interesting just in a professional sense, um, kind of knowing that less is more and it's teaching you all of these professional life lessons for later on in life. And some of the chapters are pretty fun. One chapter taught me how to start my own cult and it eerily sounded similar to kind of what we see um, in the media with our political parties and Trumpism. Um, so I definitely recommend that chapter. I'm blanking on what law that was identified as, but what's super interesting about the book is that to kind of back up these laws that it's bringing up, it goes throughout history, whether it's through a, um, a Western or a non-Western lens and talks about how a person um, was an observance of the law or whether or not it was a transgression of the law. And it also includes um, different typologies of people that you will encounter in the professional world. A lot of this surrounds monarchies and dynasties and um, more serious positions of power, but it's interesting how relevant that still is today. And it's nice to see the historical examples. And some of them are so funny that it doesn't even seem real. Mm -hmm. Now, Here's a question. So do you think that shaking hands will come back once COVID is over or once we have a vaccine? Do you think that's a trait that's going to come back into happening? Because no one really shakes hands anymore. I mean, I'm always up for a good handshake. Growing up, my dad always told me that he wouldn't respect any of my friends if they didn't have a good handshake. I'm assuming that's a classic dad joke. But I think that after COVID, a lot of things are just going to change in general because in some ways how we're able to, or students are able to have internships from a complete different part of the world and still participate. So it's in a way, while there is a lot of inequality in terms of internet access, for those of, who are privileged and can access internet, it opens up a bunch of other possibilities. Um, um, it opens a line of communication that necessarily wouldn't have been there before. And I think that it also makes things more accessible in a way, as I was talking about earlier, it removes that physical boundary. Um, so maybe the adjustment to remote learning is showing how easily everyone can be accommodated if the right effort is put in. Um, I don't like to answer your question more specifically, I do ramble. I apologize for that. No um, I don't really see myself shaking hands. I'm somebody that I might be a little bit paranoid. Even if they say that we flatten the curve and that it's successfully going away, if a vaccine does end up being developed, I don't think that people will be um, so gung-ho to shake hands as they once were. 
I think that there might be some permanent changes in terms of accommodations and um, making things more accessible for others. At least that's my hope after all this is over. Now to move a bit away from COVID and just a general 2020 question, because it has been a very historic year. There are so many news stories you probably have forgotten half of things that have happened, even that were important a month or two ago. So if you could imagine when they start writing books about this year, so in a year or 10 years, 20 years, an historian or a social scientist has to look back and pick a moment or a topic to write about, what do you think a topic is that they're going to focus on? Oh, that is a really good question. I haven't thought about that before. I feel bad for any historian who has to sit down and really think about this. I think that in this age of rapid um, developments in communication, that that would be increasingly difficult to compile everything that that compile everything that's happened. So you could either choose to do it through a purely political lens in terms of how the US did not handle this properly or in comparison, what did other countries do better? Or someone could focus on higher education um, in terms of what was did students push for change? Was there an increase in student leadership? And then also in terms of um, you could talk about social justice and activism. You could also approach it through that lens and talking about how COVID-19 um, brought forward all these different opportunities for research into powerful alternatives that would solve um, apparent inequities and um, inequality in our society. There are so many um, different pathways that one could choose to focus on 2020. I don't think it's as cut and dry as let's pick one moment. I think that everything as, um, as what this pandemic has proved is that a lot of things are interrelated. So it's almost impossible to focus on one aspect of this time in history and um, isolate it from the rest of everything that was happening. Now, uh, this, so there are certain moments that people have assigned to different generations. It's like, oh, this, has defined, this moment has defined the generation or it's affected them in a certain way. Um, World War II, or although we were, Alive during 9-11, we were very young, but for that generation who were growing up during then, that was a moment that really changed the world. Do you think this moment is, or this year, is going to be something that affects all of Generation Z moving forward, or do you think it's something that people will be able to get over and sort of go back to a type of normal that was before? I think that this is changing everything. I think our generation is still going to be um, traumatized from these years um, of our lives. I don't think it's going to be something that we easily get over because while everyone was at home, a lot of people were doing research, a lot of things were happening. Like I said, it's almost important to identify one factor and how that takes um, precedence above all or that that should be focused on more than others. I think that this will define our generation. It'll be a moment of, I apologize for being a little bit distracted, um, a funny tidbit here. My dog just ran into my living room with a pillow in her mouth and she's tearing it up right now. Um, <laughs> but um, I do think that this will define our generation, but showing us that while we 
we do have this time, especially over the summer, to really make a difference, to continue to educate ourselves. And with an upcoming election, there's the whole debate about um, whether vote by mail is valid or not. A lot of people are voting absentee. Um, there's also the issue of removing polling stations and voter suppression. So through this and having our generation and our age group be such a huge portion of the electorate, it's showing that I think this is the year where, I guess in summary, we're learning that our voice has to be used intentionally and that our voice does matter. I feel like in previous generations, they weren't as open about talking about their emotions or their identity or where they came from. And our generation's very centered about not invalidating each other's experiences um, pursuing this more um, objective interpretation of reality and really thinking about what can I do to make a difference. Now, if you could tell the historians of the future or just really send a message to anyone who may listen to this however many years down the road to really try to understand what this moment is, was like, what would you tell them? That is another hard hitting question that I was definitely not prepared for. So I applaud you for these excellent interview questions. I think that it's, if I could tell somebody or I could give somebody advice from this time or in reflecting on my experience, it would be that connection is extremely critical and you don't realize how connected you are until that connection is taken away from you. Um, as depressing as that does sound, um, as I'm very extroverted as a person, um, I am energized by people being in the presence of other people, talking to people, sharing my ideas, having debates, whatever it may be. And it's all about adapting and trying to figure out connection without starving yourself of it. And I think that this switch to remote learning and operating mostly from virtual programs out of, uh, or for safety's sake, has shown us that um, the human spirit is unbreakable and that we have to be there and support each other. Now, in uh, two questions ago, you mentioned the elections, the presidential elections going on, but there's also a lot of other elections. If, can I get your uh, general thoughts about the ongoing 2020 elections? And that can either be about the presidential one or if there's a local elections you're more concerned with, senatorial. Just what are your general thoughts of these going forward? Yay, you asked a political question. I absolutely love that. Um, so I make a joke that I'm Wheaton's resident moderate because um, <laughs> in a lot of ways I am. I'm somebody who doesn't immediately have a party allegiance. And if I do at the moment, that's because I've researched their policies and their opinions. Um, and that's not to say that nobody else does that. I'm just saying that I don't have a blind party allegiance or if it is a local election, I wouldn't vote Republican down the ticket or I wouldn't vote Democrat down the ticket, not even independent. Um, so in terms of this election, I'm very curious to see the outcome because our generation has started this hashtag settle for Biden campaign. I'm not sure if you've seen that online. Um, it's interesting to see um, Biden, who I consider to be, or I considered even right off the bat to be one of the more moderate selections for president, 
um, working with Bernie Sanders and um, AOC and this unity plan to bring progressive reforms. And I love seeing that there's a climate change agenda um, incorporated in all of that. And with everything that's going on in our country, it seems just deeply divided. And um, as much as I hate to say it, and this doesn't absolve Biden of whatever he did, um, that's kind of where I stand right now because we need a lot of those reforms now. And I think if we have the same us versus them mentality and a president who just decided today that masks were of important uh, or of importance, it's, um, it's critical that we have someone in there who is more moderate and will be able to make those types of decisions even before candidates became more clear um, and before we were thinking about voting in the primary or the general election, I always thought to myself, in this divisive time, we need somebody who is more moderate to kind of shift the discussion. Having somebody who's more in the middle, because rapid change right now, just going from like a very right-wing administration to a left-wing administration, I feel like that there would be more blowback and there would be a lot more gridlock and not a whole lot would get done. Or what would happen is we're seeing is that after Obama's term, we're seeing Trump come in and just try to reverse everything that he did because it's that same type of partisan gridlock. So having someone who's more moderate coming to the table and being able to maybe balance those or at least have um, some favor with um, people from both sides of the aisle, liberal and conservative, it might make for a more stable change. It might not be the rapid change that everybody's looking for or the changes that we need, but it might at least start the conversation or there might be able to be some more compromise. So I'm not exactly sure what the results will be because after 2016, I've been very distrustful of polls. Um, so again, we'll just have to see a number. Now you mentioned that you said you called yourself the uh, Whedon's resident moderate. And I asked this question, uh, not in recent interviews, but before it's, do you think that, on a campus like Whedon, which is known for being liberal, is there a place for like a voice of dissent? Do you think there is a room where real discussions about policies can happen? Or do you think it's very hard to have those types of conversations? Well, I've heard this in a positive context, and I've also heard this in um, a more negative one in the reference to the Wheaton bubble. So the Wheaton bubble is um, mostly referred to in conversations about, well, the Wheaton bubble is blue. Wheaton is a blue school. And if you speak out against the Wheaton bubble, there will be backlash. I feel like there are voices of dissent on campus. I just think that those who are in leadership positions, um, um, they have um, very left views and they also elevate other people who think that like them. I know that there's a club on campus called the um, Wheaton College Conservatives, and that club is dying off because they're struggling to find members and kind of open it up to um, bipartisan discussion. But those groups, and I think the idea of being labeled a conservative on campus is becoming a dirty word in, um, in Trump's America because Trump has kind of started his own wing of the Republican Party in that I don't think that most um, people who identify as conservative are raging Trumpites. Um, so on Wheaton's campus, 
Um, there is a voice of dissent. It's just, it's not necessarily being actively crushed. It just is as a side effect. I know that there's um, a new group coming to campus run by um, Sam Stone class of 2022. I believe it's called Democracy Matters or Democracy Now, and it's a specific chapter. And I believe it involves um, going to different conferences, but they talk about, I believe, um, among other things like campaign finance reform, and it's supposed to encourage a bipartisan approach. So I'd like to see how that would function at Wheaton. Um, but I call myself a moderate and that, um, this is a term I'm not sure if anyone's familiar with, but a cross-pressured moderate in terms of I could, um, where I could be like very socially liberal, but then there are certain things where to me that would be, um, it, it would maybe rub me the wrong way, not socially, um, but maybe if it comes to um, the economy or um, other issues, I can't name any at the top of my head, um, but it's more acknowledging where I'm getting my sources from, what information is in front of me. I approach a lot of this stuff with um, a critical lens in knowing that both sides are pushing an agenda, um, whether that's willingly acknowledged or not. Um, but um, as somebody who lives on campus as a moderate, I don't feel particularly um, under fire because I do share um, the values that the school is promoting and I share the beliefs of most students on campus. Um, however, um, it just might differ in terms of talking about different systems in the US. For example, at Wheaton, there's always the capitalism versus socialism debate. Should we adopt a more European model or should we keep ours and just promote structural changes from within. So there's a lot of room for dialogue at Wheaton. And I think that realistic policy discussions can happen if we acknowledge that change might not necessarily be rapid or we carve out spaces to genuinely have these without it becoming an echo chamber where it's just a bunch of students with the same beliefs coming together to talk about their beliefs and confirm them. Uh to ask a question about um, your majors, what you're studying. Obviously this year, we've talked about this, but it's been transformative and you said you think this will be a generational defining moment. We're still having two years left in college and then whatever education you do after that, whether in a formal way at a school or uh, your own type of research, do you think that this year or a particular issue will affect what you study in the future or how you look at what you study? I'm curious because I'm a poli sci major as well. So I'm just wondering how the ongoing elections, COVID, Black Lives Matter, the really the entire year will affect what I look to, what I look to study in the future and how I view the things I study. Yeah, so it has got me thinking about a lot of things in um, recent courses I've done research on kind of the um, the psychology of policymakers behind immigration law and also welfare policy. And what we're seeing in there is that sometimes public opinion itself has more impact than does the data that's used to reinforce the policy. So how do those attitudes of deservingness affect 
policy outcomes. And it definitely shouldn't be that way. I would prefer to live in a world where objective truths, if those exist in politics or actual statistics in, enforced what would truly be beneficial for um, the people of the United States. But um, how this has affected my career choice is that I came into college with this idea that I would become a lawyer and that still stands. I'm not exactly sure what law I would prefer to go into, but I've definitely um, considered immigration law um, as I believe that my majors, um, they complement each other nicely and that I'm learning a second language, but I'm also learning about um, structures in Latin America and more domestic political structures. Um, so that's where I'm headed at the moment. I'm sure that will be subject to change in my next two years at Wheaton. As you said, it's kind of a scary fact that we're both rising juniors. Um, but I definitely think that this won't just maybe affect our choices of study and research, but the majority of the campus for sure, because I don't doubt that Wheaton students know that this is a moment where they definitely have the authority to step in and carve out spaces to um, conduct meaningful research. Now, as we end the near, uh, near the end of the interview, but I forgot to ask this and I meant to. Now, I spoke to Liz was eaten a few interviews ago. I asked her about the Student Relief Fund, and I thought it would be wrong if I didn't ask you about that as well. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that process. I think, especially if people look back at the history of Whedon, I think they'll be curious as to what the students did to help students during this time. So if you could tell us a little bit about that, the Student Relief Fund process. Yeah, so um, the Student Relief Fund um, was a proposal that I wrote with um, Elizabeth Eaton, who's also a member of the class of 2022. We wrote this when I was serving as SGA secretary and um, she was serving as the SGA treasurer. So we combined forces and that the administration um, had just received CARES Act funding and they were already thinking about expanding it, but we thought that SGA has a lot of robust resources because it does, and the majority of the campus doesn't really know that. Um, Wheaton as an institution always has kind of a deficit, but SGA in funding, we always have a surplus um, based on the money that we've collected from years past. So um, we hadn't really used any of the funds from this past school year, unfortunately, to create something meaningful that would help all students. Um, so the first time we tried to pass this proposal, it didn't um, because of some um, valid doubts about how the administration was going to allocate our funds um, once we distributed them or and once Liz transferred them to another account. But the second time around, after um, representatives had time to think on it, we are so grateful that it did pass. We um, wrote the proposal with the intention of helping all students where we wouldn't be involved in making those specific allocation or distribution decisions. We didn't see any access to confidential information. We just knew that in this moment, immediate health should be prioritized and that we should save some funds for future SGA projects. But there was no reason why we couldn't use that surplus to go to something meaningful. And um, as we've talked about throughout this interview, this is a, cru a critical, crucial moment in um, the history of the world. And at Wheaton, 
um, where we're taught that we do have a voice and that we do have a decision, we're constantly told that um, whatever we do in student government association, whatever we do as student leaders on campus is going to be archived for generations of Wheaton students to reflect on or emulate. So during this pandemic, we decided why not have it so that if they ever flipped back to our resources or what they did, they could be proud that they went to Wheaton and that their student government was working for them and for students in need. So um, to continue talking about it, um, we've been co-chairing an ad hoc committee on transparency, which works with student um, financial services as well as um, Dean Irish as a member of the Dean of Students Office and the administration um, in order to publicize the fund and also to collect student feedback and troubleshoot um, if necessary. And the major purpose behind the committee is to make sure that we're connecting everyone to the resources that they would need. So in terms of allocation data, I believe SGA donated around um, 64K and also reaching out to the campus community and clubs you all are so awesome because all of you who did opt in knowing that there weren't any financial repercussions for your club and knowing that none of your fundraising would be taken away thank you all to all of you who were able to participate i get choked up just thinking about it because it's such a wonderful moment where our community came together you raised over 95K. That's an additional funding to be distributed to students who needed it. And that raised the minimum grant amount from $300 per student to $500. And during a pandemic where our needs are urgent and circumstances ever changing, we were able to provide services to not only domestic students, but um, those who were non-FAFSA filers, international students, and coming together and uniting behind this cause as community is something beautiful. And it's something that we all should do again with different ideas and how we should be informing each other and keeping an open line of communication because that, is, that example is just, it, it's a starting point where we can continue to work together and um, pass some really meaningful proposals with impact that might not be immediate while we're still on campus, but for years to come where we can come back to Wheaton and say, I was a part of that, or I did that. So I'm very grateful that the proposal was able to go through and I'm really grateful for the people that I've worked with in this ad hoc committee. So that's actually Harrison, um, Liz, Michaela Savaris, Sophie Weston, Sophie Waters, Khalif Jonathus. Um, all of you um, did a wonderful job and now we're currently on the feedback collection aspect so we're going to be reviewing survey data so there's a lot more to come and we'll keep you updated on that but it was a wonderful project also mentioned uh harry topol oh no i forgot harry harry i mean no disrespect we have so many people in there and also i forgot to mention eva so evil eva Danielson, sorry about that. Eva Danielson was also responsible for helping us. So it's a long list of names and I apologize for the people that I left out, but all of you did fantastic work and you all played a very meaningful role. And again, I mean, absolutely no disrespect. Thank you for catching me on that. And Harry, if you ever listen to this, and Eva, I am so sorry. 
So we're moving on to the last two questions, which are the only two questions over the last, including the 17 interviews that have stayed the same. Uh, and this one is, what do you think the next steps forward are? And that can either be for you, for your family, Whedon, your local, like however way you want to interpret that question, just what do you think the next steps are? Mm, I think I'll stick with the Wheaton realm because I don't even know a lot of answers to my own personal questions right now. That's kind of a journey I have to take on my own. Um, sometimes I can be indecisive in that way with personal decisions. I mean, the next steps for Wheaton is unfortunately, they just have to bring us back and see what happens. I think that the event of a lockdown or shutdown at Wheaton is probable because like I said earlier, we all are, we all are college students. This is our experience. We may not take to the new rules or guidelines, expectations, whatever it may be. I think the only thing we can do is wait. The next steps are to keep crafting these very specific, very detailed plans. I feel like students at Wheaton take better to a lot more detailed things than they do non-specific um, small paragraphs of information. So the campus just has to continue to inform. It really needs to revamp its mental health services and um, continue its outreach in different campus offices. Um, but again, all we can do is wait and just see how this either worsens or gets better. And on to the last question, which is, I think the most direct, but sometimes from people can be the most difficult to answer, is, are you hopeful? Hmm. Again, coming at me with these interview questions. Um, I am an eternal optimist, no matter kind of what I see. I think that there's, if I ever feel discouraged, I know that there's and I know that this can be kind of a weird way or unproductive way to look at things, but if I ever feel discouraged and I keep trying and nothing's working out, I know that there's somebody else out there who's also trying but is succeeding. So the efforts I might be making on a personal level might not be paying off, but somebody else is. And knowing that keeps me pushing for the things that I want to see in the world, the things that I want to do with my career. Um, so I am a, um, I guess, in being an eternal optimist, I am hopeful, yes. Well, thank you for sharing. Uh, once again, this was a moment in history, our 17th interview. For all the people who listen to this, thank you. For all the people who may listen to this years in the future to try to look back at this time and understand it better, we hope this was helpful to you. Uh, thank you for letting me interview you. And thank you all for listening. <laughs>